Lord, we thank you for a nice day, beautiful snow on the ground, and uh, just a, a wonderful Michigan morning, and we thank you for uh, this place, Judson Baptist Church, where we can gather together and talk about you. Lord, we continue to pray that you would uh, just give us comfort and, and hope in the midst of our sorrow at, at uh, the loss of our friend Steve. Lord, we pray that you would continue to uh, be at work in, in all of our hearts, especially in, in his sons. Lord, we pray that as we look at uh, the idea of faith, what is faith, uh, we would have a, a meaningful and, and uh, uh, profitable discussion and that, Lord, we would find ourselves drawn all the more to uh, giving up all that we have uh, in this world and in, and in the carnal uh promises it makes that will never satisfy, Lord, in order to receive uh, infinitely greater inheritance uh, in, in eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's move on to question 70. We're getting near the end of this thing, you guys. I'm serious. Well, you gotta remember there was a full year and a month in there where we only met three times. Where we were like, hey, we're off and running again. Nope. <laughs> All right, number 70. What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance to life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sins and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose to strive after new obedience. That is so densely packed. I think what we want to do is just take one phrase at a time uh, and look at the text that it gives for each one, talk about each aspect of it, and then I actually also printed out the catechism on the catechism for this one. It is so in-depth. It has 61 questions. Now, I don't know. What did he say? Another three years? We're not going to look at all of them, but there were a couple of them that I thought, ooh, yeah. Um, but let me start, of course, obviously, with a, an old timey illustration. Children, says Cecil, are capable of very early impressions. I imprinted on my daughter the idea of faith at a very early age. She was playing one day with a few beads, which seemed wonderfully to delight her. Her whole soul was absorbed in her beads. I said, my dear, you have some pretty beads there. Yes, Papa. And you seem vastly pleased with them? Well, now, throw them behind the fire. The tears started into her eyes. She looked earnestly at me, as if she ought to have a reason for so cruel a sacrifice. Now, the first time I read this, I'm expecting there to be some, like, ram caught in the thicket where she doesn't have to do it. Brace yourselves. Oh, no. Well, my dear, he says, do as you please, but you know, I never told you to do anything which I did not think would be for your good. She looked at me for a few moments longer and then summoned all her fortitude. Her breast heaving with the effort, she dashed them into the fire. Well, said I, there, let me lie. You shall hear more about this another time. Oh, my God. But say no more of these beads now. Some days later... I brought her a box full of larger beads and toys of the same kind. When I returned home, I opened this treasure and set it before her. She burst into tears with excessive joy. These, my child, said I, are yours because you believed me when I told you to throw these paltry beads behind the fire. 
Your obedience has brought you this treasure. But now, my dear, remember, as long as you live, what faith is. I did all this to teach you the meaning of faith. You threw your beads away when I bade you because you had faith in me that I never advised you but for your good. But put the same confidence in God. Believe everything that he says in his word. Whether you understand it or not, have faith in him that he means your good. I don't think I have the stomach to be able to do that. I'd be like, let me tell you a story about a guy who did it. In fact, I just did that. Did you hear that, Calvin? There. Burn your Pokemon cards. Do it. All right, let's, let's, yeah, let's take this a, a phrase at a time. Repentance to life is a saving grace. What does that even mean, a saving grace? It's not a trick question. Trying to figure out a way to say it without using those words. Right. right. Well, with grace, you can call it... Unmerited favor? There you go. It's, a, it's an uh, undeserved gift that rescues us, right? Uh, I think that that itself could have been um, the short answer, but you have to explain what comes of it, how it comes, the, the fruit and result, etc. Um, somebody look up Acts eleven eighteen, which is the text it gives for that little phrase. All right. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think that's one of my go-to verses as far as the um, Ordo Salutis. The idea is, if it's granted to them, they didn't dredge it up from inside of themselves. We think of, of, we obviously think of repentance sometimes as the end accomplished by proper means. That is a language taken directly from the P.T. Barnum of the evangelical world during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he looked like a clown, and Barnum actually made the tense that he used. Uh, But he would say the proper use of means results in sinners changing their own hearts and turning to God. And so what he did is invented the anxious bench, which has later become the uh, altar call. He invented the tinkly piano underneath the raspy-voiced invitation. And all of this stuff was meant to stir up some dregs of something in the heart of the listener that was native to them that would kind of result in repentance. It was all in you, and I'll draw it out of you. That is not how the early church viewed these things at all, or they wouldn't have said, whoa, God has even granted repentance, given repentance to the Gentiles. Uh, And that, I think, is maybe the most important thing in this whole answer and all of the, the texts with it. Because if salvation's a gift, but you earn it by your repentance, it's not a gift. As Paul himself says, if someone is given, uh, works and is given a gift, it's actually their wages. It's actually what they're due. But if something is a gift, it has to be a gift beginning to end through and through, including, yes, it comes via repentance and faith, but both the repentance and the faith are also gifts. It's like when you, speaking of the order of salvation, if you open gifts for a birthday or Christmas or whatever, uh, with my side of the family, there is never, 
ever a gift that you can just open whenever you want. There's always like, hold on, this, then that, then do this, and then half open this one, and then open this one, and then finish this one. It's, there's like an order to it, otherwise it would give something away or something. Th these are gifts that come in an order that scripture describes for us, and that makes sense, but continue to be gifts. Because if we were going to try and dredge up some kind of sorrow from my heart, what we would come up with, or from your heart too, would be worldly sorrow, which leads not to life, but to death. And we'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. Uh, I want to read uh, from Alexander White's description here. I, th I think that this is dubious Greek, but I'm not 100% sure. I may have been wrong about something for a while, uh, and I'm, I'm really anxious to look into it more. Uh, this is what he says about repentance. This word originally meant merely an afterthought, a second thought. Before it had any moral or religious sense attached to it, the word signified the sight we get of an action when we look at it after it is past. But words grow, and they grow with the growth of the mind that uses them. Sometimes they grow better, and sometimes they grow worse. They are like the dyer's hands. Their nature is subdued to what they work in. And thus it is that with us, the pure intellectual act of memory becomes entangled, embarrassed, and burdened with the past it is continually revisiting. So full is our past of matter uh, that causes regret and remorse, shame and sorrow, that memory in us has almost lost its pure and natural operation and become transformed into an evil conscience. The return of a man's mind upon his past is almost equivalent to a condemnation of his past. And thus here, as so often elsewhere, the grammarian, before he is aware, is already within the sphere of the moralist. And etymology has, all unwittingly to itself, become the forerunner of experimental religion. The study of words is often saddening, and this is an example of it. That's amazing! Um, but, the, so, so the Greek word, if I had my whiteboard, I'd write it for you, is metanoia. I've said this many times to you, and I've, and I've told you about the Old Testament Hebrew word, uh, which is shuv, right? And that means, someone said it just last week or the week before. Turn. To turn, a turn, a change of direction, a change of, you know, um, actual orientation from self to, to God. Uh, and the Greek word metanoia, you know what meta means, right? As a prefix. It means with or it means after. Uh, and... So the idea of noia being mind, I have always, and, and I've, I mean, I didn't come up with this, you know, from my strong skin corns or something. I, I heard this in New Testament classes and Greek classes and things. Always been taught and always believed and always repeated that it means essentially the mind we have after we've been saved and are now being renewed of mind, not the mind we had before. The mind we have as our mind is becoming more and more like the mind that is in Christ Jesus not the mind that is rooted in the old Adam slash Zach. Uh, but White suggests that instead of after mind, this is afterthought. And the word started, and it's perfectly possible, I know very little about classical Greek, and I, I don't regularly work with it ever, that the word long before it was used to mean repentance just meant thinking back. And how meaningful would that be uh, and yeah, he says, you know, this is a, an example of the, the sadness of etymology, etymology being the building of words, uh, the origin of words, um, and looking back how they came together, how they developed and, and evolved in meaning. 
how sad that is that we can't think about our past without essentially being convicted in some way. And of course, one could sear his conscience and not be convicted and not feel bad. But the more you think about your history, the more you just uh, are kind of condemned in it. Uh, I think that's such a fascinating uh, concept or theory for, for the development of that word. Uh, I will look into it more. I just actually came across this uh, yesterday evening and I, and I thought this is not going to be a short term thing. I don't have two and a half hours to put into it now. So um, what are your thoughts on that? That, that idea of uh, an afterthought, a second thought uh, turning into over time repentance because all of us look back at our past and are moved by shame and sorrow and regret and remorse. Memory loses its pure and natural operation and becomes an evil conscience. I think it's absolutely human that that is true. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's sometimes difficult to move past that. Like, you know, the little toy that we used to have that you'd write on and then you'd pull the paper up and the words would disappear? If only we could do that. Mm -hmm. um, that when we, when we came to Christ, when we accepted him as our Savior, that we literally could rip the paper up and not remember any of that or see any of that again and just see, you mm. know, the beautiful clean slate. If the vestiges of the old self were no longer there, the, the, uh, the right. carnal nature, the sin nature, the right. flesh. Right, how yeah. How much is just, it's just there all the time and you really have to struggle to, you know, keep it behind you. And of you course, know, there's Satan can't get behind you. Yeah, right. You stay there. You stay there. <laughs> the apostle. Um, yeah, we talked about that not that long ago. Like how we often wish we could jump right to glorification, and yet there is obviously a purpose in our struggle and our uh, becoming partners with God in this work of sanctification uh, during this life, becoming progressively by degrees more and more like Jesus, even while sometimes falling back and then having to be picked up again and cleaned off again. Um, that refining. Yeah. Yeah, refining in the fire, yeah. And really the need for um, to be surrounded by other Christians for mm -hmm. that to happen. Because if you're not, it's easy to dwell in that. Yeah. And that's what Satan wants, is you to just dwell in that. Right, yeah. Just here's shame. And, and without Christ, that becomes the result. And so the only options are... For the person who is outside of Christ, if they, in their afterthoughts, thinking back, um, find themselves filled with remorse and shame and a sense of condemnation, either you convince yourself there's some way to work your way out of it, you know, balance the cosmic scales, which leads people into lifetimes of just crushing moral weights. Uh, you convince yourself or let the culture convince you because that's the full-time job of the culture today that you, know, this, you shouldn't be feeling that. That's just, that's just some hang-up you have from how you know, your dad didn't hug you enough or that's just some uh, leftover puritanical uh, rules that are hanging in the, in the effort. None of that matters. You know. Just free yourself from it and, and recognize that, that you are enough as you are right now. Say it with me. I am enough. And then you go, okay, all right, well, now I, I do that enough and I don't feel like you know, my past 
is anything to be ashamed of, you know? It's, all, every step on that broken road led me to where I am today. I wouldn't change a bit of it. Um, or, you know, you, you find some third alternative and the world's religions are, are full of them. Uh, but ultimately, only the, the true faith gives you the answer, which is, here is one spotless Lamb of God, the only one who could have borne your sins to wash you and make you clean. And does then pull up on the, the wax paper thing or whatever that's made of. It was like cellophane with, I don't know, that's high tech, you guys. That's actually pre-Magna Doodle. Remember the Magna Doodle did the same thing. Um, he does do that as far as God's view of us, right? It's all gone. And yet those vestiges remaining. Well, I think that but part of what's difficult about it is that it seems so unbelievable that it's all gone. And that God doesn't see you right. as you're seeing yourself. Yeah. Because the world certainly really still difficult. sees you that old way. Yeah, well, and there are many people who will want to. And remind you yeah. all the time. Yeah, that's still who you are. Uh, I knew you back when. You're not fooling me. Yeah. And the, the devil says the same things to us. Yeah, we both know who you really are. And, and we know that if you had really changed, you wouldn't feel this draw back to the old things. Yeah. When, I mean, gosh, this, the New Testament is so precious for this, right? Showing us how even St. Paul, I love how St. Paul is like, beginning to end, he's like, listen, guys, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. And we're like, so he's the best. Uh, and he's the, the, ch the chief saint. But, but it, I think that's the beauty of it. He, he is the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He is the, the greatest theologian that ever wrote down doctrine, had this greatest, longest encounter with God. You know, he's out in the, in the wilderness. He's drawn up into the third heaven. He's receiving his gospel, not from men, but directly from Christ. And yet he's like, listen, all that aside, the stuff I want to do, I still don't always do it. But I'll tell you what, those things that I don't want to do, you could set your watch by me doing them. And we go, well... What, what's the answer to this? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? And then he immediately gives the answer. He doesn't even be hanging for a verse. Same verse, he says. Thank God for Christ Jesus. Yeah. I don't know the exact words. That's the gist, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, praise be to God. In Jesus Christ, we have the victory. So it's, it's not in us, it's in him. And I think, I, I don't know the mind of God down to, you know, anything beyond what he's re revealed, but I think he has revealed enough for us to know that's why he's not just instantly like, poof, now perfect. Um, that's a continual reminder. I hold to him. It's not suddenly uh, even after my uh, justification. It's not now just I dig down into myself and, oh, look, at I'm perfect now, and I'm surrounded by all these imperfect sinners. That would be hard even to I think that evangelize. Our, I think our compassion comes from our remembrance of our own sin. Yeah. Like uh, the uh, the woman that was going to be stoned, Christ reminded them of their own compassion and reminded them of where they were. Mm -hmm. and, and that that brought them together and they just walked away rather than stone her. So they're in a position of we are have the moral high ground now. And he said, hold on. Yeah. Weren't every one of you in her spot at some point? It, no one caught you in the moment, but you did something. Yeah, yeah. And, and without that, I think we become Pharisees really quickly. Mm -hmm. I think you see that a lot, too, in the church as yeah. a whole, that pharisaical um, pointing at other people's sins 
so that you don't remember your own or you don't think about your own or you pretend that, that you didn't really have any because you're super good at keeping all these, you know, legalistic rules and... Which is beyond ironic because what you're doing then is becoming the type of sinner that Jesus, instead of saying, come to me, let me give you a hug and set you free, said, woe to you. It will be, you know, better for Sodom and Gomorrah than you. I mean, like, you're you're moving yourself from this broken position of save me to this other category where Jesus came in. I mean, and he didn't come in because there was no hope for them. Obviously, he came driving in hard because it was going to take a lot to break through that veneer of self-righteousness. Well, and I think that's what you see sometimes with people who are like really loud on TV or social media or whatever about some other person's sins that you find out later they did the exact same mm. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and they have a very public fall <laughs> breaking through that, you know... That's another way I think that, that people apart from Christ or even those who are tempted when they're in Christ uh, deal with thinking back and, and finding that remorse and regret and everything and, and, and what, what they've done and thought and said and failed to do and think and say is to focus on people who did thought and said things that look much worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you go on Twitter after someone has one of those public falls, even a little one. And you find this is, this is like crack to people. Yes. You know, give me another hit of that guy's public shame. Yes. It's uh, really sick. I mean, the thing is, I get it. That's the problem. Like, I mean, I don't get the piling on to the point of making, you know, people feel terrible. But I get the, like, what's the, what's the Greek word? Uh, or the, the German word? I don't know why I can never remember it. You always can. Schadenfreude. I almost said that. And I'm like, no, that's me making up German. Um, Aaron's like 1% more German than me. <laughs> You'd know just to look at us. But, but like this notion of hearing about someone else's suffering and that kind of scratching an itch, even though at the moment it does, you go, ick, it shouldn't, and I feel bad, and I'm, I'm ashamed that it did. I don't think that you often have that feeling for yourself, though. I think somebody else points it out. You know, I've had that happen in my life where I'm like, oh, these people, and somebody with me is like, well, they probably just... And I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the very phrase that we, we skipped over, the first words here, repentance to life, is also uh, worth looking at. Um, why is the repentance described in the answer called repentance unto life? The answer given in the catechism on the catechism on the catechism. Uh, because being a saving grace, it is inseparably connected with salvation, of which it is a part. Likewise, it is called this to distinguish it from the sorrow of the world, which worketh, worketh death. Somebody flip over to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Uh, it doesn't get into this in the, the shorter catechism. The Westminster Larger does, but, but we're going to look at the concept anyway. Because even just calling it repentance unto life implies an imp- repentance unto death, just like the existence of Tom Holland and Tom Hollander imply the existence of a Tom Hollandist. Um, Corinthians seven ten. Yeah. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Two different kinds of sorrow, uh, and the classic example is right after Christ's uh, crucifixion, Peter and Judas. Both are really, really sad. Like hitting bottom sad. Both have rejected and turned away from their savior, 
arguably their best friend in the world, the one hope that they had, the thing that made the world make sense and be worth living in. And yet one leads to life and one leads to death. Peter's sorrow is godly sorrow. It is repentance um, that is much deeper than, oh, this went wrong. This didn't turn out the way I wanted. Oh, now I feel bad. I wish I had a mulligan. Rather, it is, what have I done to my Lord? I, I told people I didn't know him. He warned me ahead of time and gave me like a, a time code for when I would do it, and I still did it. And, and he weeps. He goes out and weeps. And he doesn't come back to Jesus. Do you ever notice that in this story? This is one of my favorite stories. I don't know why I bring it up a lot because it's kind of like the description of my whole life. Standing on the beach, by the way, I've, I've told you this before, was my favorite part of being in Israel. It was it was crazy to me just to be like, this is, this is the thing. This is what I'm going to remember this moment. And they're like, it's time to go back to the bus. I was like, eh. Um, but the, the idea that he distinguishes himself from Judas by going back to Jesus and saying, restore me, that's misplaced. He goes out fishing and he does swim into Jesus when Jesus comes to him. He, you know, throws off his outer garment, goes, swims out there and and leaves them to deal with the 187 fish or 137. Ooh, if Roger Winters was here, he would know. That's a Bible trivia thing. I think it was 87. Um, But... Jesus says, come to me. And so why didn't Jesus do that with Judas? I mean, there, there is the practical Judas had already killed himself by the time Jesus rose from the dead, so he couldn't. But if he hadn't, if he'd put it off, or if he'd just been you know, dejected, it seems to me still, Jesus has beforehand said it would be better that he'd never been born. This is the one that's going to be taken from my hand because God is allowing it, because this is fulfilling prophecy. And... It seems to me that the difference is the nature of their sorrow. I don't think we can even properly call Judas's repentance. when, Even though it's a change in his thinking, he's now not wanting Jesus to be taken by the Romans because he already was and he wishes it didn't happen. It's a change in direction because he takes the money back, Mm -hmm. says take it, they're like, we can't touch it, it's blood money. So he throws it in. And in that moment, you're watching that, you're like, okay, I see where this is going. Jesus is going to restore even this guy because this is how deep Jesus' grace goes. And then it ends with him hanging himself, which as I described uh, earlier, uh, is probably uh, a, what do you call impaling of himself rather than hanging from a rope. Um, that's, that's a dark ending. And you say, well, why wouldn't this story end with both of these guys? restored. Like, Judas, Peter, come with me. Both of them crying. Group hug. Like, I'd prefer that. Wouldn't you prefer that that's how it ended? And yet, there, there was no real uh, repentance unto life in Judas. There couldn't have been, or, or the story wouldn't have spun out that way. What I find really interesting that I just thought of when you're talking about these two guys is that Peter denies he knows Christ, and Judas says, the one that I kiss is, mm. like, he's like, I know the right guy, and Peter's like, no, I don't know him. Like, I never thought about the fact that they're doing the opposite thing. So you can, and that kind of fits into the idea of, like, I never knew you. Like, didn't we say, Lord, Lord? Mm-hmm. This idea of, like, you seem on the surface like you're a follower, but you're really not. The second question of the 62, uh, this one question... <laughs> is what is meant by the sorrow of the world working death. 
The meaning is that the legal sorrow or horror of conscience, which the men of the world may have from a dread of God as a vindictive judge, ready to pour out the vials of his wrath and vengeance upon them without any conception or belief of his mercy through Christ is nothing, nothing else but the beginning of eternal death and inconceivable misery, as was the case with Cain, Judas, and others. I read that and I think some of the Baptist churches I've been to where the preacher got up and just got red-faced and shouted and, you know, the idea was it's bold, it's unflinching, we're going to make you repent. You're probably, if you accomplish something in that, going to make people repent with the sorrow of the world working death because you're instilling in their mind a notion that God is just so mad, you need to be scared, you need to be sorry, you need to be sad. But if that's the basis of the message, that's a recipe for worldly sorrow, which leads to death. That's Not godly sorrow, which leads to life and, and has, there's no regret involved. It's all regret, right? It's all, don't you regret what you've done? And I mean, now, I, I, like I, I preach to you that uh, sinners in the hands of the angry God. Jonathan Edwards. And you'd go, well, that sounds almost like that too. But I think the difference is, like Jesus, he shows the realities of, of sin and God's wrath and how terrible it is. But then, with the other hand, says, just like, just like Paul, when he, you know, but God, well, we were yet sinners, but God provides for us a way of righteousness apart from the law. But it's always, but God. God is rich in mercy and he loves you and, you know, return to him he will you know, run to him like the, the prodigal son and he's going to embrace you. It's a much different picture. And, and the former, the, the, the really hard-nosed fire and brimstone preaching, I think it, it, it's indistinguishable from other heathen gods that are supposed to make you sorry and sad and scared. Well, it's kind of like the angry father versus the loving father. Mm-hmm. Now our father is, is angry with sin. Right, but he's not like... The, the angry father threatening punishment and meeting out punishment. He's the father who is pointing out the where you went wrong and then restoring you, right? I think it's the difference between a, 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 maybe a father who punishes out of anger and a father mm. who disciplines out of love. Now, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful not to swing a pendulum to the other side because there will be a time when the vials of God's wrath are poured out, and it is punishment. It's not, it is not, it's not what I'm talking about. That that will be, yeah, at the end. Um, So I'm just trying not to make God's nature be something that's at odds with what we read about, you know, the eschaton. But yeah, the way we present Jesus now ought not to be, when you get home, I'm telling your dad what you did, and then you're going to get it. Um, That, that's pretty common, I think. And it's so easy. So easy. It, it, both of those are easy. The stand up front and just berate and make you feel awful and condemn and say, you know, you better shape it up or ship it out or, you know, if you don't get it together, you're, you're doomed. Or the, don't worry, mm-hmm. he's the cool dad. He'd rather you drink here in the house than off somewhere Tell else. Those you know. are bad fathers. They're both bad fathers. <laughs> they both tickle the ears of a certain kind of person. I think that if one was going to tickle my ears and has, it would be the first one. Like for, for whatever reason, maybe because my father wasn't like that, 
there's something compelling about, ooh, that's weird, that's off-putting. It's rather than if someone comes from a home where, where you know, there's a lot of threats or even, you know, abuse or something, they're going to run in the other direction from the God presented that way. I, I don't know why, but like, I know both are wrong and repentance unto life is this tension of a real God with real anger against sin who has wrath and is love. And at the end, rather than coming down immediately in the clouds with fire and throwing lightning bolts at people, he came down as one of us, lived a perfect life, died in our place. What? Wow. Now, I'm, this is the God the Son, obviously. I don't mean to <laughs> confuse the Trinity, but all three persons of the Trinity are involved in that, in that uh, act of salvation. And it's just mind-boggling. And what do you do with the cross in the situation where you're pimping uh, the repentance of the world that leads to death? Other than, this is what he did for you, and now look what you do to him. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? That's blasphemy, right? To use, misuse the cross in that way, when what it should be is, look what he did for you, he will, it, it, what won't he do for you, right? Um, wow, we're going to get one phrase into this. <laughs> I think, um, what, what about this? The um, little phrase from Tim Keller, by the way, pray for Tim Keller. He's got like stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, and I saw somebody on Facebook, I think, say maybe it's because he doesn't preach the truth or something. And I was like, oh, I have no hope anymore. Uh, and then I remembered I was a Calvinist. I never had any hope in mankind. So, um, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's just very troubling. Uh, the, someone could pile on. Um, but uh, that's here, neither here nor there. Um, my point is he at one point said the difference between these two things. I don't know if it was on this text or not, but it was the idea is that the worldly sorrow is, oh, I've broken God's law. The godly sorrow is, I've broken God's heart. And obviously godly sorrow involves, I've broken God's law, but I think that as a kind of real general way of sussing all this stuff out, that's the best I've ever heard. Are you horrified that you broke a law and there will be punishment and consequences, that this is something written into the fabric of the universe and you made a mistake, or are you horrified that you broke your father's heart and come back to him in tears and say, forgive me, next time give me the strength to stand when, when I'm tempted. It, I mean, it doesn't take a super saint to, to do that, right? Peter is not yet worthy of being called the rock when he's restored. It's just that he's willing to be restored. He wants it. He, he's brokenhearted. You almost even get the impression that he's running away from Jesus a little bit by going out into the sea. That would be where you would go if you were trying to get away. That's what Jonah does, right? I want to get away from God. I'm out. But when it comes down to it, he, he comes to himself, just like the prodigal son. Can't, he doesn't even think about it, right? You jump into the water. You're like, oh, you could wait an extra 90 seconds and we can take the boat to shore. He's like, too slow. And he goes to Jesus. Make that your muscle memory response when you find that you have sinned. You, you, rather than shrinking away, oh my goodness, I need to make a plan for how I'm going to fix this mess. Before I dare come into God's presence again, 
go as quick as possible. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not do any errands on the way. Go to Jesus. John Piper had a really good, you ever do this Ask Pastor John podcast slash um, video thing? He had a great answer for someone about, this person was like, I've been struggling with pornography for years. After I look at it, I hate myself. And the hating myself makes me do it again. And sometimes it takes a month before I even come back to church or pray again. And he had like, it was about this, this guy and his pornography, but it would apply to any sin. Um, I almost just said Google it, but make sure safe search is on. Uh, but but uh, just look at John Piper, The Moment After. I think that's what it was called. The Moment, a- the moment After Your Sin. And, and the idea of if your idea of God truly is merciful, loving, father who, who will forgive us, uh, we can make it just an automatic, uh, not, not even decision, just subconscious act. And the moment after a sin, even if that sin is me in my mind or out loud calling the guy who just went 90 past me and pulled in front of me a moron, to immediately confess that sin. And getting into that habit... I think is a recipe for great sanctification, strides forward, right? And not, not going, oh, going to have to confess that at the end of the day, add that to the tally sheet. But confessing it now, pray without ceasing, etc. Um, okay, I think we're getting a little off, off track here, and we're only <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six words. We're six words in, that's something. What time is it? Yeah, we got, we got time to look at one more little thing, maybe. Uh, so it's a saving grace whereby a sinner... Out of a true sense of his sins, and there's a text there, so we're going to stop even though that's an incomplete thought, and someone look for us, uh, look up for us, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Mm. Cut to the heart. The, the true sense of sin. Let me read, um, now the... There are multiple other questions that deal with this, and so Alexander White tells us to see the answers to 14, 31, and 84, but let's not do that. Uh, if, we, if we start getting into other answers about other questions about other questions, we're never finding our way home. A true sense of sin is to see it and feel it as committed against God and against God as he is revealed in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. A true sense of sin is felt when a penitent keeping ever before him the injuries he has done to himself and to his neighbor and doing all that in him lies to make reparation for these, yet cries continually, against thee, thee only have I sinned. A true sense of sin is to see its sinfulness and its aggravations, that meaning things that make it worse. All the experimental scriptures are full of a true sense of sin and no other writing in the world is unless such writing is drawn has drawn its spiritual insight and sensitiveness from Scripture. And of all the Scriptures, the 51st Psalm is perhaps the best, as it is the fullest expression of a true repentance under a true sense of sin. For another example, see Bunyan's Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners, also highly, highly recommended. Um, I I think that uh, that little section in the middle is is what really strikes me. That you can... Uh, keep your sins before you, what you've done against God, yourself, your neighbor, 
And, and you can do everything that lies in your power to make reparation, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna make amends, I'm gonna fix these things, I'm gonna make a list, I'm gonna check them all off as I go, and still you're stuck with against you, you only have I sinned. Uh, when he, he mentions the 51st Psalm, of course, that's the Psalm that we uh, understand David to have written after Nathan came and gave him the, you know, whack in the side of the head of, oh, oh, King George, you are that man. Veggie Tales, anybody? <laughs> All right, yeah, King George and the ducky. Um, he, he had stolen his friend's most precious thing, which is his wife. I don't know if it's offensive that Nathan uses a sheep to stand in for the wife, but take it up with him when you get to heaven. Uh, but he's, he tells him this story. David is so angry. And then he says, it's you. You are the man. And not in the sense of, King David, you're the man. But like, you are that man. You're the bad man. He's brokenhearted. And when he writes this, it, it always strikes me when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. It's like, that, only? Against God, sure. But also, but his... Brokenheartedness is I've broken God's heart. And he can't make really amends how, right? I mean, now we've got an infant who's died. We've got a husband who's died. This woman is just wrecked. And he, I'm sure he must have said, I'm sorry, but I mean, you see, you're sorry to break somebody's glasses. Not when you kill their husband and your sin results in the death of their child and their whole life is upturned. But he can go to God still, and he can, with a broken and contrite heart, in this beautiful language. In fact, let's just end with, somebody read for us Psalm 51 in its entirety. That's, that's repentance unto life. I, I have it. I can read it. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in inequity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. I take not your Holy Spirit from me, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my heart will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices are God, of God, our broken spirit. 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's so much in there. Two things that stand out real quick as relates to this. First of all, when he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I, the fact that, and, and the other is that he calls him the God of my salvation. That's like his, a title. You're the God of Israel. You're the God of my salvation. I can't change that. That's who you are. And he doesn't say restore unto me my salvation, even though he doesn't have any like Baptist sense of, uh, you know, once saved, always saved, or, or, or some reformed idea of the perseverance of the saints. or what, I mean, if, None of this is, is what he's, he's just God's nature is what he's thinking. Uh, not eternal security as a, uh, you know, a, a bullet point on a doctrinal list, but he knows this God. And this is the God who, if he comes with a broken and contrite heart, God won't despise it. It, it, whatever he's done, whoever he is, it's who God is. And I think that that's got to be the real core of what is repentance unto life. It's rooted in who God is and, and knowing who God is and trusting who God is and throwing yourself at the mercy of who God is uh, and going, man, even though I am who I am, because God is who God is, he'll forgive me and he'll I'm restore He restored David. Has anyone ever gone on that kind of sin bender other than like Mussolini and company? I, this is, he, everything he did, he did something worse after it to try and cover it up or make it better. Worse, 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 worse until it, some, he, he implicates his entire army, which by the way is off fighting without him because of his uh, laziness or, or uh, whatever, but he implicates all of them and killing one of his best friends and most loyal subjects. And you go, that, there's no coming back from that. If Judas couldn't come back from, oh, it's him, and giving him a kiss, David can't come back from that, but he can because his broken heart is truly broken for having broken God's heart. Uh, and that's, I'm, all right, I'm going in circles, so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would always have the kind of, uh, broken and contrite heart over our sin that we read about in Psalm 51, Lord. We pray that we would always come to you for forgiveness, that our sorrow when we think back or have an afterthought uh, would be a sorrow that is godly and comes to life with no regret. We know that this is offered to us freely by Jesus himself. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would not fall into the trap of shame and, and being paralyzed by a sense of, of our own insurmountable sin. Lord, we know it's not insurmountable for you. And we pray that we would not fall into the false worldly sorrow where we lament how we've gone wrong because it's turned out badly for us or makes us feel rotten inside. Lord, we pray that we would have true repentance and that we would live a life, as Luther said, of repentance, uh, that it would be who we are uh, as we walk along this path of sanctification. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.